Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is studio designer and Phantom Focus developer Carl Tatz. First of all, the album is being reinvented. Yeah, the album hasn't been doing well in the streaming era. Sales are down really low. People don't really care about albums because they're just streaming songs one at a time. So does that mean that the album is over? Well, not really. It just has to be reimagined a little bit. We're seeing this come from a couple of different sources. First of all, Damon Alburn from Gorillaz is releasing what he's calling episodes every six to eight weeks which consists of a song and a video and a short podcast. And he claims that this could go on forever, basically, just like a TV show. So we're starting to see the adoption of the whole idea of more frequent is better than waiting two or three years to release a product, as has been standard in the past. Taylor Swift recently took a different tact on that, where she's doing chapters. And this is based on a theme. So there may be a few songs that are part of this theme that are streamed out. Now, this makes a lot of sense when you think about it, at least from an artistic standpoint. Where it doesn't make sense is when we talk about economics. If you look at songs today, they're shorter and shorter, somewhere between two and three minutes, and actually closer to two minutes. The idea behind that is that. If someone really likes a song, they'll listen to it again and again, and that way the artist and the songwriter will get paid again and again. Whereas one longer song or two songs or three songs that are streaming together, you may only get paid once for that particular stream. So as we can see, most artists are actually going for shorter rather than longer. However, again, for many artists, they really want to make an artistic statement The album was the ultimate artistic statement, but since people aren't buying those, the next way to do it is in shorter pieces of an album. So look for that to become sort of a standard in the next year because we're already seeing this begin to happen. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Here's something that's interesting. The Sequential Circuit's Profit 5 is being reissued. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, for those of you who weren't around in 1978 when the Profit 5 first came out, it was groundbreaking. Up until that point, synthesizers were basically one note at a time, or if you separated the oscillators, two voices. So you couldn't really play chords until the Profit 5, and that had five voices of dual oscillators, so it really sounded good, and it took the music business by storm. As a matter of fact, from 1978 for about four years, five years, you heard the Prophet 5 on every song that was a hit. Today, that's not a big deal, because we have pretty much as many voices as we want. We only have 10 fingers anyway. 
but the new Prophet 5 is coming out. And of course it's updated. When I began to think about why this might be happening, I realized that there were some clones that were about to hit the market from Behringer for one. And it made sense that the original designer of the Prophet 5, Dave Smith, the sequential, would do this first and better. So there's a number of cool things if you're really into it. First of all, it has the original Curtis oscillators and it has the original low-pass filter as well. Now, you think about those oscillators and you think, well, you know, one of the bad things about the original Prophet 5 was they were so unstable that you were always tuning up because they were drifting out of tune. However, new hardware synthesizers don't have that problem. The interesting thing with the new Prophet 5 is that there's a vintage knob on it, and you can actually go back to different versions, all the way back to version 1, which is the most unstable, if you really wanted authenticity. Of course, the new Prophet 5 is updated with MIDI, USB, a velocity-sensitive keyboard, an aftertouch, all sorts of cool things like that. There's also a Prophet 10, which is the same thing, only with 10 voices coming out. And the only thing that stands in the way of a lot of people buying it is the price. $34.99 for the Prophet 5 and $42.99 for the Prophet 10. Again, the biggest thing here is how revolutionary this was when it first came out because there was nothing like it on the market and there's nothing like it for quite a while. It also had a sound that was killer. So it's nice to have that back. If you really want to get that late 70s, early 80s sound, Prophet 5 is the one you want. My guest this week is studio designer Carl Tatz, who went from being a studio owner in Nashville, designing studios, mixing rooms, and listening rooms for some of the biggest clients in the world. He then took that to another level by developing his own technology and products. Carl wanted to take monitoring to a more precise level and develop his Phantom Focus technology, which incorporates dual subwoofers and a meticulous setup using a client's existing monitors. The result is smooth pinpoint accuracy seldom heard in rooms without this optimization. Along the way, he incorporated his own products into the mix, which includes monitors, subwoofers, amplifiers, monitor stands, workstations, and even a specialized e-chair that helps keep the listener locked into the sweet spot. During the interview, we talked about the beginnings of Phantom Focus, the little-known Allison effect, some practical tips for setting up the subwoofer and your monitors, and much more. I spoke with Carl from his office in Nashville. Let's talk about the evolution of Phantom Focus first. How did that come about? Okay. It kind of started when I owned Recording Arts, when I, when I had that studio for uh, my commercial studio I had for 18 years and uh, sold it to Sheryl Crow in 2003. I had purchased that was an evolution from being a 16 track Fostex demo studio to a full blown mix room with a brand new SSL G plus with automation at the time. Um, and at that point I really had to book the studio to the top, um, you know, productions in Nashville to pay for the damn thing. So I kind of got away from the board and music, unfortunately, but that gave me time to work on the monitoring. And so I started trying to, I, I always had a passion for studio monitoring and 
uh, it kind of started there with a lot of putzing around. Uh, I brought somebody in to tune it at one point and then wasn't happy with it, brought him back again and just realized that uh, I needed to learn needed to learn some sort of hardware or software to do the tuning myself, and which I prompted, promptly got in, well, then promptly, eventually got into it. Uh, after I saw the studio, I was doing some while I had the studio, but I would just tune people's rooms for free using just boat anchor uh, analog EQs and, you know, like Myers or Symmetrics or Rain, things like that. And it was before the, you know, the, the digital processor days or just right on the cusp of it. So eventually it just kind of evolved to the point, actually very quickly it evolved to um, something I could actually charge for. And it certainly has evolved over the last 2003. So what is that? 17 years. Yeah. So I like to think like every year, year and a half that I learned something new and it's usually something new and it's usually a simplification, just like my studio design. There's so much voodoo in studio design that I keep streamlining it and finding out, you know, what's important and what's nonsense. So I just started doing things with originally with just like one EQ, one stereo EQ. And then I think I had a project up in New Jersey and the guy wanted multiple, wanted to be able to switch out monitors. And so, you know, digital was the way to go with that. So he could just change the process and we could have three settings for three different sets of monitors. is isn't quite as simple as that, but um, that was the first digital. It was an XTA processor I used then. And, um, you know, processes kept getting better. You know, that, that was back in the 48 days and now they're 96. And I just tried a lot of different processors and ended up with uh, the one I use now. That's made by Ashley, and it's it's an Ashley engine with my programming, and it's my favorite. So that was the processing end of it, and then then we learned so much with uh, speaker placement, and and uh, we eventually uh, evolved into a, a what I call a quad laser uh, format, where we take a you know a good part of a day just to laser the. Uh, the speakers in is assuming that they're freestanding and most of them are, I mean, the great majority of what we do is near field, of course. And, um, that was an evolution with my assistant and he came up with, or the two of us came up with this process for uh, aligning them. And then, and then, um, you know, using uh, smart, I'm still using smart, you know, graduated to the newer software a couple of years ago. Uh, I held on to the old stuff for a long time, but finally got onto that. And, uh, and just, like I said, simplified and learned things. And, uh, you know, in the early days, it was like, uh, you know, reinventing the wheel every time we put a, a system into a studio. And now we've got a template and, you know, we allow two days for the process, but it's often done within one day just because we have it so down and, you know, we bat a thousand on these things. It's just, it's pretty dramatic what happens and it's, it's uh, a lot of fun. You're talking before about simplifying studio design and some of the design nonsense that you've been finding. Give me an example of that. Bass traps. Well, all bass traps aren't nonsense, but they're greatly overrated as far as what they can do. 
I think people think that it's, it's, it's kind of the two myths that come to mind are one is people confuse, uh, sound treatment with sound isolation. Yes. Sound, sound isolation is absolutely has nothing to do with sound treatment and vice versa. In other words, you can put, you know, massive amounts of treatment in a room and it'll do absolutely nothing for sound going outside the room and vice versa. And the other, other myth is, um, that you can tune the monitor system with, with, uh, acoustic treatment. It just can't be done. It doesn't matter how much, well, I'm not going to say that. I mean, if you brought NASA in and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they made it a, a multi-million dollar project, you know, but it probably wouldn't want to be a, a room that you'd want to work in. You probably have to crawl into it on and walk sideways to get into it. One of the reasons for that is, which I point out in my lectures is, uh, what I found out is called the Allison effect. And that if you put speakers on a stand in front of a console or even on a console meter bridge, they, the speakers will, and it will uh, roll off drastically at approximately 125 Hertz. And it doesn't matter what room it is. It doesn't matter what speakers they are. They all do it. There's no exceptions to it. The boundaries can make a difference. And sometimes it'll be a little lower than, than that, but uh, it's pretty much done, and you can't you can't EQ that. I'm going to talk to like 15 dB dips, hmm. uh, and then it'll come up someplace. And this is the you know the single reason why everybody has such a hard time with the low end. It's because they're not hearing it. So I nobody ever talked about it except me in my lectures, and I just thought, how come nobody nobody talks about this? So a friend of mine who was uh, the tech for JL uh, subwoofers at the time. Uh, found this article in some sort of highbrow Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Cambridge Audio Society, I bet. I think that's right. Yeah, I have a copy of it. Yeah. <clears throat> so he sent it to me, and a guy named Roy Allison found out that what I was talking about, the, the, you know, the, it's a floor bounce, it's a ceiling bounce. There, obviously, there's other things going on in the room, but that, those are the dramatic things. Well, there's a cancellation where the low frequency bounces off the floor or the ceiling, depending on the height of the ceiling, and it causes this dip. So up until that point, and it's called the Allison effect after Roy Allison, and those are the guys up in Cambridge who invented all the, you know, the hi-fi speakers that greatly influenced every speaker we listen to today. And it was called the Allison effect, and up until that point, I thought it was the Tats effect. <laughs> so I was, gl- I was glad to uh, give up the moniker f- to-, to somebody else who, I could blame it on somebody else. <laughs> See this guy, Roy Allison, you know, yeah. it wasn't just me anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a big, that's a big deal. And that's, and the only way you can fill that in is with subwoofers. And the only real good way you can fill them with subwoofers is with processing. And the only way you can use processing is to have knowledge on, um, you know, analyzing equipment mm-hmm. and lots of practice. But, but I do I do advise people, you know, if at least get one subwoofer and play with the phase. Don't don't set it at 80 hertz, which which was the old <clears throat> THX thing. Set it at about 120 because that's where the dip is, and then play with the phase and just do the best you can, and just get something that you think you can work with because that's pretty much what everybody does anyway. Uh, you're never going to get it, you know, to the level that we do without you know a lot more. Bring a lot more to the table. Do people still build studios with soffit-mounted speakers? 
I think you see less of it. I think you see you see them uh, in wall, you know, mm-hmm. but not not the above the the, uh, the control room window anymore. I think those days are gone. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of them still around, but <clears throat> the ones I see, you know, they'll put them in the wall on either side of the window so that they can be more ear level, you know, uh, but they usually still, it's a very tricky thing. Like if somebody wants a dual phantom focus system, which means near fields and mains, it's a very careful calculation because you don't want the near fields to block the mains and it really has to be thought out and the angles have to be uh, anticipated and drawn even, even when they're down at more or less ear level. So you, you want them probably the big, the bigs, you want them a little high uh, if they need to shoot over the, um, the near fields. And then of course, tilted the idea is so that the tweeter or horn crosses the ear of the listener. Yeah. Okay. So you first developed phantom focus process of tuning the monitors and then you went to subwoofers to building your own subwoofer, which seems like a natural extension, but did, was it because you couldn't find a subwoofer that was sufficient for what you wanted to do? Oh no, not at all. You know, all my, all my stuff is third party and, uh, that's actually built by another company for me. And here's another thing. I'm sure a lot of people will freak out, especially other subwoofer manufacturers. It's not, there's a lot of exact, there's one company, I can't think of the name of them. And if I, I would mention it if I, I did could remember, but it has so many controls on it that no one would have any idea what the hell to do with it. And basically what you want is a great driver and a, and a really good box. That's all a subwoofer is. Now, some of them have, you know, some auto or auto correction capability that would probably knock down some of the peaks. But again, it's still, you're only going to get so far with that uh, without bringing more to the table, as I mentioned. So my experience, and I've used a lot of subwoofers, there's not that much difference, like real expensive ones versus ones that are thousands less. It's just not that big a difference. The, the only two differences would be some will go lower than others and some will play louder but you can only play so loud. You can only play as loud as your monitors are going to play anyway. So we always use two subwoofers and load them in the corners, the front corners, because that's where the biggest uh, piece of meat is. And also it, it does a, a wonderful thing where uh, when you do that, they become out of phase with one another at the first and third axle width mode. So that those big dips you have at the listening position just come up automatically. And then obviously having two is going to give you three dB more headroom. So even modest subwoofers, when you have use two of them, they can pretty much handle 110 dB. That's as loud as a pair of near fields are going to get. And it's rare that you can have anybody playing 110 dB for more than, you know, a few seconds anyway. You know, 105 is like a really good loud level but you can't listen to that too long either, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so subwoofers aren't that big a deal, but I did pick these. These are just these are just great drivers in a great box is what they are, and they're very inexpensive. The uh, the Ice Cube, it's called the Ice Cube because it uses the uh, ice amplifier, which Bang & Olufsen developed, 
uh, it took two years for us to get the, uh, the, uh, those ants, but they're pretty spectacular. They're just very fast. So it's just a very good sub, but you know, I, I wouldn't have a problem if somebody had, you know, two other subwoofers that I thought that I, that I would approve. I, I wouldn't be against necessarily against it. Sometimes I am. I mean, if I think they're junk, you know, and then there is junk out there, but not too much. And, and I greatly prefer, um, sealed cabinets for subwoofers as opposed to ported and just tighter, you know? Mm, yeah. So you've gotten into other products as well. And like you say, the third party, but nonetheless, they're to your spec console, for instance, console, meaning the furniture speaker stands, all sorts of things, your signature series from RLX. Tell, tell me about that signature series. Well, the main thing they, they, uh, Oralex does for me is they make the uh, acoustic lens columns that you see in all my studios, those, those columns you see, or most of my studios. And that's, uh, that's something that I learned along the way, actually, from uh, Art Noxon and his tube traps. Half of a tube trap is what it looks like to me. Right, right. Well, you're familiar with tube traps, and that's where it started. It's, yeah, it's, we actually have the ability to make our own. We can make these things ourselves. It's just it's just not cost and time efficient for us to, but occasionally we'll make the, the round ones as opposed to those angular ones that we use most of the time. Um, and they're, they're absorptive and reflective. And um, it's a big part of what we do because I'm, I'm a fan of having absorption combined with reflection and diffusion on the sides, part of my mixed room philosophy. So they work really well. It's amazing what they do where, you know, you, where you have nothing on the wall, like we use mirrors a lot. If you clap your hands, you get this reflection. You just put those things up. You know, they can be 12 to 14 inches apart, and it just takes it right out. It's just, it's just done. So I like them a lot. That's where that came from. Well, here's a good question for you. So I have a lot of tube traps. There's two different sides to them. There's a reflective side, and there's an absorptive side. And I never really got the proper way to set those up I, you know i've done it by ear and the way i feel it, it should work but well, what's your thoughts on that the attack wall i mean i've never heard an attack wall but i think it's so you actually have an attack wall set yeah. up for you and you have your monitors in the attack wall that's good yeah um yeah i've never actually experienced one but uh <clears throat> when you have let's see what a quick field is what they call it where you set them up in, in a horseshoe around you and you leave you know, a foot or so between the, the, the you know, the stands, the, um, the two preps on the stands. And you can either face the uh, reflective side in. And the idea is that the sound that goes out, when it reflects off the room, it'll come back and be absorbed by the, by the absorptive side. But it'll give you a little bit more uh, life inside. Uh, I'll tell you who was a big fan of that was Roger Nichols. Yeah. Uh, he used to work in my studio a lot. And uh, he loved him. But that's the general idea. Bruce Wedeen, too. Bruce used to actually borrow mine when he was in town. And if I wasn't using it, well. Oh, yeah. Well, he, what happened? Yeah, he was the poster boy for the attack wall. Yeah. What happened was they kind of loaded me up on more than I needed. And I didn't really discover that until later. I just gave them the dimensions of my room. And next thing I know, there's a truckload that, you know, rolls up. Yeah. It was way more than I needed. So I always had some extras. So when Bruce is in town, he used to borrow them. But that being said, the reason why I bought them, 
I was on the convention floor for AES, and Westlake used to use them. And you, you know how loud a convention floor can be. They were demoing their speakers with an attack wall, and I walked inside the perimeter of the attack wall, and it was so impressive. It sounded great. Yeah. And, you know, the outside was somewhat attenuated, and I thought, well, this is great, and I keep on moving rooms from where I'm at, so as a portable solution, this would be terrific. So now I've had them ever since. Well, an attack wall with a phantom focus system would be very interesting. Yeah, I bet. And that can be moved also. Let's talk about your chair, the e-chair. Okay. So I discovered that several years ago at AES with Steve Knight. He had his chair. I had heard about it. Actually, Russ Long told me about it. And I, I just liked it instantly. I said, this is great. Can I put this as part of the phantom focus system, which it is. I mean, if you... If you uh, Purchase a phantom focus system. It comes with the with the phantom focus e chair. It's that integral, or at least I feel it is. And uh, I said, what can I do? Can you customize these so they they're different than your your standard chair? And he just just stepped right up to it. Actually, we're gonna something else coming down the line that's gonna uh, distinguish it even more. Some new sexy arms. But he's gonna send me a couple here pretty soon. I'm not sure how fast will be available because he's just working on prototypes right now. But yeah, I mean, obviously you have a chair, so you know what it is. It just makes you sit up straight. And for monitoring, you're just there, which is what you want to do. You don't want to slump. Ideally, you want to kind of be at the same height. You know, if, if you slump, you're going to be, you know, X inches lower to the monitors. So it's nice. It keeps you, keeps your posture, keeps your back straight. And you're in the ideal posture listening position for a monitoring yeah the best part for me is the fact that it does move with you too so if you if you were to reach over if you have a a, a real console especially and you're reaching you know anything up on the console the chair moves with you in a way form-fitted to you and and that's completely unique it is it's totally unique it's i kind of go back and forth between the two because i really like when you put it in the fixed position it gives you amazing lumbar, you know, and you can kind of bounce back on that, on that rest and just kind of massages you. So it's, I think it all depends. Again, I'm, it's been years since I've engineered like you, I spend that much time, you know, in front of a console. Um, so I might use it differently if I was doing that again. Actually, I have mine in my office. Oh, okay. That's where I spend most of my time when it's all said and done. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Right. So yeah, same thing. Yeah. I know that when you design a studio, it's more of a package built around your Phantom Focus system. So people are buying that they're they're buying the design, but they're buying the Phantom Focus system because they all go together. What you're doing. That being said, you seem to be very busy with studio designs. Like you have a, a lot of new ones coming online, and a lot that have just come online. So that seems to be the same for other designers that I've talked to that even what seems to be a downturn in the business, everybody is kind of busy designing studios. Have you found that? You know, I mean, I, I can't say that the pandemic has made a difference for me because it's, it's at least 90% of what we do is in home homes now anyway. So it really hasn't, I mean, I, I haven't noticed any bump that because people are already working at home. So it doesn't make much difference. Um, for me, so I, I can't really comment on 
and any difference I've noticed in the last several years, it's kind of been a, a trend. A train left the station quite a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what I've been hearing is like, uh, someone will tell me, yeah, we just designed 14 podcast studios for Facebook or, you know, things like that. Oh, okay. Uh, or, yeah, a big studio just went into such and such a college and there's a lot of that going on. But again, you, right. you concentrate on a different part of the business. Well, I do some of that. I, I mean, I, you know, I've got some educational facilities, but I've kind of like, I turn stuff down. I, I do what I like. I turned something down recently and um, reluctantly because I know it could have been great, but somebody wanted to do a, uh, uh, a Dolby Atmos room, production room, which we're actually doing. I mentioned to you that the other night, uh, we're doing one of those in uh, Washington state. Uh, but this was down in LA and the client wanted it to be really custom and stretch fabric and kind of, what we used to do. And I just don't want to do that anymore because it's very time consuming. It's, you know, it ties my guys up a long time and it takes months to do it. And I would rather just, we've, you know, we've come up with this sort of architecturally modular process with the Phantom Focus mix rooms uh, that just works really, really good. It's relatively, I mean, it's definitely faster and, it works really, really good. So, so I'm very pleased with, with what we're doing now. And that's, I just kind of want to do what I want to do, you know? Yeah, sure. I don't blame you. And, you know, all things being equal, faster is always better. Everybody wants their room online faster. And, and again, if there's no sacrifice in quality or, or if it's even better, then why drag it out? Yeah, I mean, again, if you, the ideal situation is some guy's got a, a shoebox room, a rectangular room. And we just have to, and he doesn't care about sound isolation and we just go in and put in the acoustic treatment. I mean, we can do that, you know, really quickly. Like once the room, once the shell, what I always think of, we've got one in Connecticut that was just a room off the house. He didn't care about isolation. Uh, we had a few windows that had to be locked up and the way we do that, we don't do it on the outside. We do it on the inside and put blinds in there. So it looks normal on the outside. And uh, I just had his, his carpenter contractor guy do that, you know, to my specifications. Did a little electrical work, did a little bit of uh, HVAC work. It was really easy. And then we came in there, and like in, in three weeks, it was done. It doesn't happen too often, but that, that's the ideal. Now, if you take one of our rooms, one of our larger rooms, where it's an actual Phantom Focus mixer room studio where they've got a tracking room, then you know, and they get sound isolation that can take six to nine months. Sometimes they get so it's a much bigger, bigger deal to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, isolation is all brute force, so no easy way around it that I know of. I mean, they keep on hearing about new developments in that area, but they never seem to pan. I, I think in the lab they do, but they don't when you find, get them out on the job. It's on a, it's kind of like a no delay streaming. Yeah. Right. You know, right. I had somebody call me the other day and asked me, what they can do, they want to, everybody wants to play together on the internet. And you can't, you know, those things, it looks like you can, but you can't, you know? Yeah. Everybody has to record separately. Yeah. I mean, there's a guy, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's a guy out there who's got some kind of voodoo like that with the, with acoustic treatment that 
doesn't make any sense to me. He's, he's alone. I don't know if anybody agrees with what he's doing, but God love him. Yeah, I think I know who you mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. He's probably been on your show, so I'm going to shut up. Yeah, I think he has. Okay, speaking of, of which, you just kind of alluded to it for a little bit. Industry trends. What do you see happening just as an industry, the industry that you're in? Are there, there any trends that you're, you're seeing? Again, I don't think anything new. I think the trend has been for years to get getting away from the, the traditional, you know, commercial studio to the home studio. I think, of course, I mean, people who contact me seem to have drunk my Kool-Aid and realize that they can have monitoring far beyond anything they've heard before. You know, that's my, that's my secret sauce that, you know, I'm, I distinguish myself from, you know, all the other great uh, studio designers. And I mean that, <clears throat> but what I do is, you know, what, what's fun for me, what, what, what gets me out of bed is, is, is to have a, a mix room where somebody sits down there and, and takes their breath away. That's the whole thing for me. So trend wise, I could just say, you know, I mean, if you, again, again, people come to me, I, I like to think, I don't know if it's a trend or not, but I like to think that people are, or some people think, are, are starting to understand that, that the monitors are the most important thing in the studio. Yeah, I think you're right. How has Nashville been changing? I, and I know that Music Row has been shrinking and shrinking every year, and the major studios are going away or changing, but uh, what have you seen in Nashville? Pretty much that. I, I don't know that I've seen anything new. You know, a lot of the uh, larger studios are owned by, you know, schools or rich guys who have a hobby. And a lot of it's in-house. You know, obviously they're still used, but the great majority of them, it's, it's in home. And I, I know you recently did a uh, did a show with uh, Lyd Shaw, yeah. who uh, vanguarded the home, the legalize, legalizing home studios. I'll tell you a funny story. I went to one of the hearings. I was amazed it happened. I think COVID may have helped it because they kept pushing it back, pushing it back. And I just wondered, I don't know if this is ever going to happen because it took years. But I went to one of these hearings and uh, this was before COVID hit. And, uh, you know, there was a, there was a group of people uh, who got up and spoke in behalf of, you know, backing the, the, the home studio concept legalizing it. And then there was a group of people who were against it. And, uh, you know, people who were for it, so some, you know, engineers who, who did major, you know, multi-platinum albums in home, in homes and basically making a comment, well, if you do that, if you close them down, you'd have to close down the music industry in Nashville because that's so much of it is done that way now. And then, you know, so they had some very good people representing that. And then there's one guy who got up, and this, this is a hearing, this is a courthouse, right? And everybody's sitting there, it's very quiet, it's like a church. This guy gets up there and he's talking about this, that, and the other, and, and eventually comes out with, but mostly I worry about the children. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole place cracked up laughing. And he swung his neck around saying, it's not funny. You know, so I mean, it's, they're out there. And some other woman got up there and was comparing it to communism. It was, it's just, they're just, People are crazy, you know, conspiracy theory stuff. You know, it's, it's no wonder that they're out there. Those yeah. people are out there. Last question, Carl. What's the best piece of business advice that 
maybe someone imparted to you or perhaps you learned along the way. You're worth what you charge. That is so good, so true. And people are reluctant to charge many times, especially, well, even even after they're established. There's a lot of ways to look at that. Sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 was it Asher? You look at the, the uh, drawings and sometimes it's upside down, sometimes it's right side up. There's a lot of ways to look at that. But ultimately, it's really, it's really true. You know, if, if you charge something and you're not worth it, then that doesn't apply. You know, you're going to be worth what you charge. Uh, I guess that, that'll be the, the mandate is that you need to be worth what you charge. Hmm. Hopefully you are. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about was I mentioned that as far as my products, I use everything's third party, but the monitors aren't. The monitors are built from the ground up in Nashville. So I use a CNC factory here, and I found a, a guy actually who paints Ferraris and Lamborghinis. He does the painting for me. And then the drivers are uh, just very high-end drivers that's from Scandinavia and, and actually Israel. So they're, they're the best, basically the best drivers you can get, uh, or among the best you can get. Uh, and that's not always the case. One thing, learning, I learned a lot. I mean, this, this was the hardest thing I one of the hardest things I've ever done was, was to come up with my own monitor. It seemed like it just got to the point where, like, I should do this. Obviously, you know, I've got the Phantom Focus system, which works with any monitors, but it just made sense for me to have my own monitor. But it was a huge, huge process to, to put that together. But one of the things I learned is that a lot of monitors don't use high-quality drivers. They're really inexpensive. I, I, could, I could tell you some, but I won't, that use really cheap drivers. And one thing that I had to have, I wanted, wanted to be able to turn these monitors up really loud and not have them crap out. So these monitors never crap out. And that's, that's what costs money. I just never wanted to hear that sound of a monitor, you know, loading and crapping out. So they will eventually, but, you know, after 110 dB, they sh- you know, you should anyway. Yeah, <laughs> right. Destroy right. your hearing. But I'm very proud of them. Take a long time to, to do that. So we're thrilled with, with the monitors. And hopefully, one of these days soon you will too. Also, I wanted to mention I put together a three episode blog called uh, Mixer and Mentor that uh, I'm going to be sending out uh, pretty soon. Hopefully, by the time uh, this airs, my new website will be done. Uh, the new Carl Tatz Design website. There's two websites Carl Tatz Design and uh, PhantomFocus.com. But uh, I've been putting off doing a, a new Carl Tatz design website because it's so such a lot of work, but it's, it seems like it's coming down to the stretch now. And mainly I just wanted to get better, better photos, better quality photos too. Uh, so that's coming down the line. So as soon as that's online, I'll be coming out with uh, that mixer mentor, mentor, probably knock it out once a week or once every couple of weeks, you know, for three weeks. And then, um, and then I'll probably, it'll end up uh, in the library section of the website so that people can re- reference it. But it's really good stuff. It's a, it's a lot of the stuff that I, I talk about in my lectures and those graphs. And, and hopefully it's, I mean, it, it'll be, I mean, it talks about the Phantom Focus system, but there's some very valuable stuff that, you know, you can use right now and anybody can use at home. And, and uh, again, in my lectures, I, I share that. It's on the website right now called uh, the uh, Null Positioning Ensemble, which tells you exactly how to set up your uh, near-field monitors. 
and I've gotten a huge amount of feedback from that over the years. Just it's the way to do it. It makes all the difference in the world. It seems so simple. It's, I'm not a genius. It's, it's, it's basically physics, and it's basically what the fathers of stereo came up with, you know, the equilateral triangle, but there's, cert, there's certain ways you want to do it, and it makes a huge difference. You can find out more about Carl at carltatsdesign.com. That's Carl Tats Design, Carl Tats, T-A-T-Z, design.com. And Phantom Focus at phantomfocus.com. That's phantomfocus, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyointercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.